Okay, the topic of the lesson today is about baptism. What is its purpose and where does it fit into the Christian faith? As a member of an a cappella church of Christ, it appears that there's a number of things in the way that we go about doing church that differ to other varieties of churches to some degree or another. Sometimes minor differences and others almost totally opposite. For example, we don't use musical instruments to accompany our singing. We take the Eucharist or Lord's Supper every Sunday. We advocate male authority, in particular in teaching and preaching. We don't believe in a vertical church leadership structure. That's, you know, a clergy or a priesthood separate and above the congregation. Those sort of things. But the one thing that appears to differentiate us from most other denominations is the importance we place on believers' baptism by immersion, being crucial in the salvation of an individual. Why is that? How is it when it seems that the vast majority of the major denominations either don't place the same importance on baptism or they practice infant baptism. Why do we take such a stand on it? Why do we make ourselves so different? So much so that I've seen honest, committed American church leaders on on YouTube, but nevertheless, take such a dim view of of the importance of baptism that they, they denounce it as a heresy. I'm thankful it doesn't happen anymore, but in the Middle Ages, entire congregations, men, women and children were slaughtered for taking such a contrarian stance. So why in God's name would good, honest believers take such an opposing view of baptism as we who practice it? Many believe that one is saved at what is described as the point of faith. That is the moment in time when the person believes in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. In that split second, God, being faithful to his promise, forgives them their sins and grants them the gift of eternal life. God can do anything. The person moves from being an unbeliever who is dead in their sins to being a saved child of God at that point of faith. They argue that subsequent acts of faith or works, and that includes baptism, play no part in a person being justified in God's eyes. That is, they, those things add nothing to one's eternal destiny. Here are some verses that support this stance. The great verses, of course. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, sorry, we have, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the one most often quoted, Ephesians 2.8 For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2.8, 
where Paul, here Paul says, that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Notice both grace and faith are in the mix here. We are saved by God's unmerited favour. That's right. It's not through what we've done. It's a gift from God. But it's through our act of faith, the human side of the salvation equation, out of our trust in God, that we receive his free gift. Okay? So grace is entirely God's work. That's his part. Faith is our part. It's what we do. But I was looking, at, looking into this and reading someone, quoting someone who discounts baptism, saying we're saved by faith only. Now they say, now when I say faith is our part, I don't, I don't mean it's our work. It's not considered meritorious for our salvation. In fact, Ephesians 2 clarifies that even faith is a gift from God, true, and that then allows us to receive his grace. Okay, so when, when I read that, I thought, where is the believer's decision to become a Christian in this? How and when does the believer actually receive forgiveness and become a true member of God's eternal family? That's the question. Is it just a matter of the sinner being willing to accept the biblical facts about Christ and then surrender their soul, trusting the Lord for his salvation. Is that it? That's what it takes? Is it just a matter of praying Jesus into your heart? While the phrase, ask or pray Jesus into your heart, is not in the Bible, that does not mean the concept is unbiblical or anti-biblical. If we say something's near to our heart, of course we mean it's very important to us, it's very near to us. And the idea of asking Jesus into our hearts is that we want him to take centre stage in our lives. Of course we do. You can't argue with that, and we all want that. We all want Jesus to take centre stage in our lives. We want Jesus in our heart, to take control of our heart. But the idea of asking Jesus into our hearts on its own, well, it does point to some key components of coming to Christ, okay, it does not convey the fullness of the gospel or what it means to submit to Christ as our Lord and Saviour. Don't get me wrong, I agree with what Nathan said a couple of weeks ago. Faith, faith is central to salvation. Okay? Not negotiable. No argument with that. And there are many individual verses to support this as we've seen lots of others. Of course, Faith is salvation is central to salvation. But the whole concept of salvation, its eternal purpose and place as the most important decision we'll ever make, it's not a single faceted thing. And I would hope that we understand that. It's really the, really the case that a single verse will totally exhaust the biblical material on a particular theme. Just because something isn't mentioned in a passage doesn't mean it isn't required for salvation. Highlighting isolated texts or discounting occasional exclusions shouldn't be used to just focus upon a limited point of emphasis. Okay, It's not like being a gunslinger and going, 
I've got this one. Bam. Okay? It's the sum of the truth on a topic that counts, not just some of the truth. So let's look at some other facets of the believer's journey to conversion at what scripture has to say about the process whereby human beings are saved from being punished for their sin and therefore can one day spend eternity with God in heaven. So let's start with Acts 2, 36, 41. 41. Okay. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Here we are at the seminal point at which the New Testament church was started. Acts 2, 38, 41. Following the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, Peter's empowered to present the gospel of Jesus to the crowd. We know the story. And as faithful Jews, the people already had knowledge of the prophets writing about the Messiah. That's why they were hanging around in Jerusalem to Pentecost until Passover. They made the commitment to be there. They knew their Bible. <clears throat> And Peter was able to convince them of the, the veracity of Jesus Christ, but Jesus, sorry, being the Christ, their Lord and Saviour. <clears throat> and their need to make amends with God for their sinfulness. So, you could say that they were brought to a point of faith in Jesus. Okay? <clears throat> But the story doesn't stop there. It doesn't end there. The passage doesn't end there that we've just read. A number of things now transpire as the people move from unbelieving sinners to saved children of God. They need to be obedient to God. See, once, once the penny had dropped and the audience realised the gravity of their situation, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? It wasn't enough that they knew in their hearts the importance of Jesus. They were desperate to know what they needed to do. They showed a willingness to be obedient to whatever was required to make themselves right with God. <clears throat> Romans six seventeen to 18 says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. So in response to their question, Peter tells them, what does Peter tell them to do? What do they need to do? 
cut to the heart. Repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of your sins. So what's the role of repentance then? The Greek word translated repent suggests the idea of thinking about a deed after committing it. We've we've done lots of lessons, we know repentance. True repentance includes not just being sorry, but resolved to stop the wrongful conduct, replacing it with godly living. Okay, repentance. Ephesians 4.22 You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. Paul contends that dying to sin is essentially a resolution to no longer live the unrestrained life ruled by ungodly ways. Of course the desire to turn around one's thinking and action has its roots in the belief and trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. That's faith. Okay? We know that that's faith. It's got its, that's thinking about how do we do that. But Peter tells them that the believer who dies to the love and recklessness of sin will submit to being buried in baptism, just as Christ was buried following his death. <coughs> Excuse me. And this is confirmed in 1 Peter 3.20 when referring to Noah and the ark, which David brought up last week, in, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water and this water symbolises baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. There it is, baptism in response to the believer's repentance. And throughout the New Testament, it highlights the critical importance of baptism for the individual believer and the church. Okay? So what does, we go, well, so we'll go through what the Bible now says about baptism. One, the early Christian practiced, Christians practiced baptism as it had been ordained by Christ. It marks the personal identification with the risen Christ. Baptism is a means by which we receive the Holy Spirit. It marks the entrance into God's spiritual family and it provides an opportunity for a public confession of faith. Before Jesus ascended to the Father, he gave to his disciples the last instructions known today as the Great Commission. And it's worth quoting again for our purposes. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commended you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The disciples obeyed Jesus and they baptised the new believers as he commanded them. They started in Jerusalem then from to Judea and then through all Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, ordained by Christ. 
Acts is dripping with examples of believers being baptised in response to the gospel. Dripping with it. So why should we stop doing it? Baptism marks our personal identification with the risen Christ. When we come to believe in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, we begin our journey of faith. We renounce service to sin and give our loyalty and service to Christ. It's faith. And as Paul put it in Romans 6, 2-4, he says, We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it, live in it any longer? Renounced sin in our lives. Then Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Colossians 1.22 explains that God has reconciled us back to him by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Our baptism is the physical, tangible, identifiable point at at which we participate in Christ's death, burial and resurrection. That's what it is. So we're no longer alienated from God, but are then reconciled to him. As Paul says in Colossians. What is more, the act of baptism will be a reminder for life of the commitment we've made. The time we actually died to the slavery of sin being fully immersed, buried and then raised out of the water and have been born anew in Christ. Like Martin, I'm a bit younger as a Christian than Martin, considerably. For me it was 23rd of July 1992 in Sydney Harbour, middle of winter at about 10.30 at night. I can still remember it, and yes, it was quite chilly. It was physical, it was tangible, it was emotional, and it was very spiritual. As we've already noted in Acts 2.38, baptism is also the means by which we receive the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. And you were, sorry, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. <coughs> Excuse me. The gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him. Excuse me. <coughs> Hangovers from COVID, I'm calling it. <coughs> Terrible. Let's start again. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised 
Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. I've got a birthmark here on the right-hand side of my back. Okay, I've got a birthmark. And just like in the Exodus, when the Lord passed over and the houses that had the blood smeared on the doors identified that that was where God wouldn't take out his vengeance, I like to see the Holy Spirit still there as a sort of a birthmark, as a rebirth mark. So when Jesus returns, all line up before our Creator to be judged, God sees the mark of the Holy Spirit. He sees that birthmark and it will be the means by which he identifies us us as one of his children. Furthermore, as Jesus promised in John 14, if you love me, <coughs> keep, my, keep my commands and I'll ask you the Father, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. The indwelling Holy Spirit that we receive at baptism guides us in our Christian walk as we grow, as we endeavour to grow in Christ-likeness. Baptism. Baptism also marks the entrance into God's spiritual family. Sorry, playing with this. Galatians 3, 26, 29. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The baptised believer has died to sin, put off the old self, clothed themselves, put on Christ. That's what we've done. Not only does the believer gain the inheritance of eternal life, a new believer in Christ becomes part of a spiritual family, a family of faith in Jesus. When Paul identifies the Christians in Rome as we, okay, Paul hasn't been to Rome yet, but we who have died to sin, he's saying to them that that they're just like all the other believers who have been baptised. That's what he's saying. That's how he's he's aligning himself with with these people all these hundreds of miles away and they're, they're being able to align back to him because we've died to sin, we've been baptised. They have a new identity as members of God's family. Spiritual blessings according to race, class, gender don't exist. Being baptised marks the beginning of the journey of faith together with the family of Christian believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, encouraging each other in our walk of service to God. 
And as Paul named and Paul named baptism as one of the seven things that unifies and unifies and identifies us as being part of the body of Christian believers. Ephesians four. So we're part of God's spiritual family as well, as well as having the Holy Spirit. as well as being buried with Christ in baptism. Baptism is also a public confession of faith. When a new believer is baptised, they are giving a public testimony of their faith in Jesus. And others who may be there are witnessing this public identification with Christ and the Christian church. Jesus taught his disciples the importance of living the faith in public as well as private. He challenged his disciples to confess their faith before others and to walk before others as his disciples. So when we're baptised, it presents an opportunity for us to confess before others that Jesus is Lord and Saviour. There's only a couple of people around when I got baptised at 10.30 at night in the middle of winter in Sydney Harbour, but nevertheless. Um, in closing, could you, could you open your Bibles to Acts 22, please? Because I think it's beneficial for us to reflect upon the description of Paul's Christian conversion experience in his own words. If we're going to be looking at what's the purpose of baptism in our Christian walk, I think it's important. Okay, Acts 22, starting in verse 6. This is Paul in front of a crowd of people. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a loud voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. So here we've got, so Saul, so Saul's acknowledged now that something supernatural was happening to him. This is not ordinary. This is not something that happens to anybody, to everybody, any time. Okay? A supernatural thing has happened to Saul. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Okay, so now, now Paul, now Saul, he's had a personal meeting with Christ. Christ is actually speaking directly to Paul, Saul. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. 
Okay, now we now he's accepted Jesus as his Lord and is clearly showing repentance and obedience. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Okay? Now now we see bully boy Saul, he's learning a good dose of humility. Okay? This is in Saul's, Paul's own words. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. So, now Saul's been befriended by Christians, okay? And he's received miracle healing. Then he said, Zenonias, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. So now, now Saul's been anointed by God as someone extra special. Extra special. And you will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. Now he's appointed as Christ's apostle. So now what does Ananias say? And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised and wash away your sins, calling on his name. In spite of the supernatural occurrences, with all these various confirmations of Saul's newfound status in God's eyes, Okay? He even had a personal meeting. Jesus the Christ even just even spoke to him. Clearly he believed and he had a desire to follow Christ. The final step, but the final step for Saul, bully boy sinner Saul, the last piece in the puzzle that identified him as being saved was his baptism. You see, baptism is the single point in a person's life that combines all of the facets, all of the biblical proven, narrative, spoken learnt, taught facets that go to bring someone in the state of salvation. That's the purpose of baptism. 
So to put it into an everyday analogy in closing, it's just like catching a train. You can know that the train can transport you from point A to point B. Okay, you have the knowledge. You can get to the station. You have the will. You can even buy a ticket. Okay, you can even do some investing in this. But until you take that step and get on the train, you're going nowhere. That's why we, that's why we practice baptism. Thank you.